0: Welcome to More to Come, P.W. Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of P.W. Comics World, and uh, the Editor of the Fanatic, P.W.'s twice-a-month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Okay, uh, uh, More to Come listeners, this week, um, look, there's always a, pl- a pleasure to talk with Jeff Trexler, uh, the interim director of the CBLDF, and that's the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Uh, unfortunately, we're here to talk about an issue that obviously it's, it's in the papers. It's affecting people. Uh, if you're a teacher, if you're a retailer, if you're a librarian, if you're an American citizen, uh, you, first of all, you should be concerned about the rise of book bannings, censorship of all kinds. Um, uh, there's, uh, we're in a whole new Seemingly, a new phase of attacks on our freedom to read and freedom of expression. And uh, I can't think of a better place to go to for resources, for information, for to get the four hundred and eleven on what we're facing here. And that's why we're going to be talking with Jeff. So, Jeff Trexler, how you doing? We live in
1: interesting times.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And thank thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Uh, more to come to talk about this. So, uh, for, for, for people who may not know, uh, the CBLDF, it's the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. I think, you know, the, the name of the organization should give you a hint right there. When I first learned of it, it was my early days at PW. I started working at PW in the mid 1980s and it was around a, a legal case that I guess was, uh, were, uh, made up the beginnings of the CBLDF. That was the Friendly Franks, the comics retailer that sold some independent comics uh, the cops busted them uh i think it was, the, was it was an obscenity case yeah and it was you know and and it's it's
1: it's almost quaint thinking about it now because you look at the books which you know that the, 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 were the target of this arrest and you're thinking that they're selling heavy metal yeah you know, uh, you're, you're talking a magazine that is now an acknowledged classic, you know, and undergoing yes. a fantastic revival right now. And yes. back then, it's, you know, all of a sudden heavy metal is coming into our community. We have to make people, yes. throw people into jail to make sure that it doesn't spread. Yeah.
0: Yes, um, yeah.
1: You know. Uh, Omaha, uh, cat dancer. It was, you know, it's yes. other, other mm-hmm. books, you know, you, you, have books where you, you look back in the history of popular culture and you think, well, these are cultural milestones. They're significant. There's something that we can all look back at and have academic discussions about. But back then comic shops were, and, uh, comic shops were, they were occupying a new place, place in American culture. Like when I grew up, I'm, I'm, you know, born in the 1960s, grew up in the 70s. If for, for most kids and adults, there, there were there were some small comic shops. You know, the, the the direct market was booming, was beginning to grow, and we had comic shops beginning to grow. But for most people, they're they're going to comic shops. They're getting their comics from their their grocery store, from their drug mm-hmm. store, from their newsstand. And a lot of the comic, most of the comics had the Comics Code on them, mm-hmm. and so there was a sense that comics were for kids, and they were, you you sort of knew what was in them, and they they followed a certain. Um, there were certain limitations on what they could what they could do and what they could say, um, but when comic shops started coming into town and you had the medium sort of concentrated and you also had I- in one place, but you also had access to a whole world of comics, not just the comics code, but a lot of comics for adults and even comics that explored you know different types of sexuality and uh, different levels of explicitness. And these comic shops are in there with in the same mall or the same, you know, road as a, as a church, as a school, as your your stores, and and people started seeing this as a threat. Uh, it's 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 an it's common to think of obscenity as you know you're you're, you're you're censoring an idea or you're you're censoring an image, but in a way, I've always thought of it in terms of zoning. Mm. And that part of what you're trying to do, you historically, when these laws were enforced, a part of what people were doing with obscenity laws, making sure that there were certain types of buildings that were not getting into the physical, the visual space of the rest of the community. And if, and if they were, if they had to be in the community because the law didn't allow the police to get rid of them entirely, then they were off to this special area or they had to have a certain look. It was just sort of reflective of how I it played out when I was growing up uh, and so they're using obscenity to sort of t- to purge the community to purify the community uh, not just the individual hearts and minds but the whole visual you know look and feel of the community itself and so um, the comic book legal defense fund arose and, and, and I gotta say I'm a, I'm a non-profits person that's why I went to law school mm-hmm. uh, to study non-profits to study ethics all sorts of do goodery uh, and and how we promote it through various institutions and One of the things I love about the CBLDF, and I I, I tell people in my other life that's so great about it, is that it formed the way you want a nonprofit to form. If it's going to be something that you want to be relying on a a, a large constituency, as opposed to, say, a vision of one person who's fulfilling the dream and has money to to back that dream. The CBLDF emerged out of the community itself. You Mm -hmm. had... You know, you had Dennis Kitchen, you had people, of people who were concerned in the community, you had the comics press, people reporting what was going on, and people came together and they donated to make sure that, that Friendly Franks could afford to defend itself. Because the law,
0: the law is stacked against most people. It, mm-hmm. It's a really unfair system. It's just incredibly in, expensive. Just yeah. to jump in, just to let people know, Dennis Kitchen, the founder of Kitchen Singh Press, he's kind of a, a breaking underground comics mm-hmm. publisher. Uh I think some of his comics were caught up in that early fr- yep. uh Friendly Franks um uh, uh law enforcement censorship mm-hmm. attack. Uh he he went to the comics community, they raised money to defend Friendly Franks and if I'm not mistaken the money that was left over was used to kind of get the CBLDF off the ground.
1: Yeah, and Dennis had had this genius idea which is, you know, they're, they're raising money for this and then they and they're thinking about the history of comics and the stuff they encounter on a regular basis and that is the friendly franks was it wasn't just a one-time thing i mean if you went through the 40s and 50s if you, even if you right. went through some there were some cases in the 60s and 70s and and you start thinking this is something that could ha- keep happening again and again uh and so what they did in a very shrewd way they you know formalized it as a nonprofit organization got a uh, tax-exempt Mm-hmm. Uh, status from the IRS uh, got the ability to solicit uh, tax deductible donations. And then they built an institution so they could help other people going through the same issues. And the name, I, I really like that you called attention to the name because that highlights something important about what's going on and maybe how things are evolving, which is when it was founded, they conceived of the comic book legal defense fund as a legal defense fund. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has, you know, I think that evokes something specific. Let
0: me just yeah. jump in for a second. And that is what over the years CBLDF has done. You have, uh, you, right. you provided legal support. You, you, uh, you do, uh, amicus briefs. I'm trying to sound like a lawyer, but I'm not. Um, no, you're doing, you're doing great. Whatever it takes to, to defend, uh, uh, consumers as well as retailers, um, which is where the focus was at first, but we'll talk about that yeah. more too, and maybe how that is more, has morphed a little bit in some of these yeah. issues. But go on. So, so when you, you're thinking about, you know, traditional situation,
1: uh, which, which happened, say, in the 1940s and 50s, you would have uh, there. There were some there association with comics and juvenile delinquencies, and there there were some obscenity mm-hmm. arrests, and and so there, there. You you see this happening. You throw somebody into court, and then you fight for your right to mm-hmm. you know to keep yeah. your freedom, not to be in jail. And so, freedom of expression was a, a very important value. Um, you had uh, a different kind of challenge to freedom of expression emerge with the Comics Code, which was the notion that corporate social responsibility or self-regulation. Mm. Uh, For people who may that, not know,
0: could you tell them what mm-hmm. the Comics Code Authority was? Just
1: briefly. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. So in a nonprofit world, the Comics Code Authority, it grew out of a trade association. Mm. So the idea here is that in the 1940s and 50s, you had a crusade against comics nationwide. A number of states had passed laws against comics. Uh, you had... Um, you, know, you had trials, you had comic mm-hmm. burnings where that schools would get people from the community together, including kids, to burn comics and, and ritual comics. scenes. It almost, almost seemed like it was a church. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Sort of things, uh, a ritual sacrifice. Yes. Um, and you had hearings at various state levels, you know, New York, uh, the federal government was was looking into regulating comics. And, and one of the ways that you can defend against regulation uh very common across industries not just in comics it's through self-regulation and there's information there are articles that were published about that time, around that time saying you know just like the movie industry had the Hayes code and things like that to, to put in a code to ward off federal regulation the idea was that the comics industry would come together and create a, a, a trade association that would have a code that everybody who was a member of the association would agree to and they would put a little seal it look like a stamp mm-hmm, right um on the cover of the book that says that basically testified that their book adheres to the provisions of this particular code. Mm -hmm. And when they wrote the Comics Code, they didn't see it as censorship. It's really interesting to to, to, to go back and read the original material. They talk, even the Comics Code itself says this is actual, this is social responsibility. This is self-regulation. This is what a business should be. Uh, looking out for what's best for your, your individuals who go to your business and the country as a whole. And they say in a very interesting provision, it's like right at the end of it, is that we hope that the comics code will be a model for businesses across industries for generations to come, that people look to the comics code, and say, this is how a business should be run. And so what happens there is so you have two different sort of levels of censorship. You have what's going on in, in state governments, and there were, there were a number of free speech issues associated with that. And, then, and that sort of collapses down sort of as, as courts pay more and more attention to it, to obscenity is the one thing mm-hmm. that, that governments can that's, – that's the wedge that you can use sure. to attack certain books. Uh, but the Comics Code covers a lot of the rest of it, and there you're not throwing people into jail if you violate the Comics Code. You're just locking them out of distribution.
0: Yes, yeah, and it's essentially a, yes, a self censorship list of everything that could not be in a comic, from yep. the most seemingly mundane, you know, to mm-hmm. well, almost everything. I mean, in many ways, some people credit the Comics Code Authority to the the focus uh, on superheroes and the uh, black and white battles of good and evil, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Which um, the superhero comics are very good at detail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but, but becomes a problem and you're trying to do any other kind of genre, uh, with any kind of literary nuance to it.
1: And that's, that's one of the genius things about the comics medium is that as much as it has borders and boundaries, uh, but it is a medium that is always trying to transcend the rules, right? It's immediate. It, it isn't, it isn't long before Superhero comics become a mainstream thing before Batman's cutting through multiple panels, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, across the page. It isn't you starting experimenting with the form. People can do Mm -hmm. things on the comics page they couldn't do anywhere else. And
0: so there's this, and even the content, of course, is starting to do things that we didn't expect superhero comics to Mm -hmm. do as we get into the Watchmen uh, in the Alan Moore era of comics. Yep. And so, so comics had this sort of
1: two prong censorship that was on the minds of people who were trying to, to fight for free expression in the 1980s, 1990s. So they're thinking, okay, well, we have this picture movement. You have governments trying to knock out adult comics using obscenity as the wedge. And then you have the distribution system, which has this sort of tendency to want to focus on sort of code approved books and make sure that they're family friendly and sort of, and you, you, it just knocked out a whole wide yeah. swath of comics yeah. in so terms can of I, where. Can I most, ask you yeah. what, well, yeah.
0: what is the CBLDF's mission? What is is—is there a succinct mission statement? Yeah, I, I should, I should have pulled up the, uh, I should, I should have pulled up the website so I could give you, a, <laughs> I
1: could, I could quick your, uh, give you a quick read. Do you have it in front of you? I have it in front of me. Uh, so as it's currently in the bylaws, it says the purpose of the comic book legal defense fund is to defend constitutional rights relating to speech and press and to assist with relief from arbitrary discrimination by authorities concerning or relating to the public's access to comic books and other comic publications. All right. And so access, mm. rights, um, protection from uh, arbitrary discrimination, these are key values. That and everything
0: we do, we try to express. So, I mean, right now, I mean, one of the things I want to touch on. uh, Obviously, right now we're in this movement where where comics are sort of in the news uh, Mm -hmm. as people, and in some, and we're talking about comics sometimes that have been awarded some of the highest literary honors. um, You know, the publishing industry, the the culture industry. Uh, our critics, um, that can hand out. And when you talk about works like Art Spiegelman's Mouse, even the, the works of Raina Telgemeier, these are, these are books that have been held up by everybody that you respect. Educators, <laughs> teachers, even people of different political persuasions can have agreed on some, many of these books. Why are, uh, why are comics coming into focus now of all times? I mean, it's, uh, and I do think in some ways it reflects on where we're headed. In some ways maybe, uh, Friendly Franks was a preview because these were indie comics. These are comics that were out of the so-called superhero mainstream. Uh, and now we have a landscape for American, North American comics where superhero comics are a major genre, but we have a, a diverse landscape now of reading and the places to buy. There's more places to buy comics and get comics of all kinds than ever mm-hmm. before. So um, that that lengthy <laughs> preamble is like, why comics uh, right now.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think that has a lot to do with it, just in terms of. And again, you want to t- talk about zoning. We've gone particularly during the pandemic. And what what intrigues me about now is that why did you know when we look at our our spreadsheets of incidents that get reported, things sort of hum along the way they've been humming along for the past decade or so. And then it just spikes mm-hmm. like September of last year. And, and it starts increasing gradually. And then just boom, there's this major like big bang, you know, um, in September of last year. And so one of the things we've been talking a lot internally is sort of what's happening and particularly what can we learn from it uh, as to how the censorship movement is changing how it's evolving sort of what its rhetoric is and and why is it doing the things that it's doing now um are there are there things that are happening that might be somewhat different say from 70 years ago you know fred frederick wortham um is an important figure and he's always sort of loomed large over mainstream comics Mm -hmm. uh, or even you know underground comics as well but uh and alternative comics but you know, he's, he's dead. He's not writing anymore. And for those who, most people for those who don't know.
0: Excuse me. For those who don't mm-hmm. know, Fred McWortham's book, Seduction of the Innocent, figured prominently in the period in the late fifties you were talking about early. Yep. Yep. You know, it's a, it was a book basically about how comics are turning our kids into, you know, juvenile delinquents. It's mm-hmm. a weird book by a very unusual writer <laughs> whose background you would not think would lead to a book that he wrote. But anyway. Oh. But, but exactly. there you have it.
1: It's a really it's an interesting thing because he's working he's working with kids in New York City um, and he's, uh, he's he was a social reformer he was a progressive mm-hmm. and he's trying to understand and he's writing in a language that was big in in academia back then had been sort of percolating over about um, over about a century in economics and sociological theory uh, moving into psych, uh, psychiatric and psychological theory. Uh, which was just what, 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 what can we learn from social influence? And people were beginning to get interested in, in how media changes things. It sort of ultimately culminates in the work of Marshall McLuhan in the 1960s mm-hmm. and he 's he's looking at this and he 's saying, you know it 's it's language that seems really interesting when you think about it today because he starts he, he talks about how certain images can spread throughout society. Uh, like a bacillus. In other words, like a virus. Mm -hmm. We now call it going viral. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Comics, comics have spread through society like a germ. They've gone, Mm -hmm. they've gone viral is how he's looking at it. And he sees it in terms of public health. He's, he's reacting, weirdly enough, we don't, it's hard, it's easy to forget this now. But weirdly enough, in terms of seeing himself as a social reformer, he's reacting against eugenics, which saw Mm -hmm. certain people of certain racial backgrounds certain ethnic backgrounds, certain intelligence, uh, intelligence is like if you had, um, a, a, you know, depressed or something like that, and you weren't yeah. doing well in school, they'd say, well, here we have this, you know, problem, it's with your genes. And so uh, regularly, you would have people from various backgrounds, if they were impoverished, because that meant they weren't sort of meeting certain standards, uh, or if there's certain races, you had people en masse being sent to be sterilized. It's a shocking mm-hmm. thing. And these sterilizations are being upheld on the regular by the United mm-hmm. States courts. Um, Heavy influence on Hitler in the 1940s was American progressive eugenic movement. It's it's little funded by the biggest foundations that that still operate today. And what what Bertha is saying is look, it's not in the genes, people. It's not in it's not a it's not a physical flaw. What we have is a social virus. It's a public health problem. And so, what is the what is the new factor that we're seeing in society right now? While we're studying a spike, what they, he claimed, what they claimed, was a spike in juvenile delinquency. Why we see all these people reading comics, which have gone viral, and these comics have images of violence and sex and you know punching and all, all that stuff, and uh, uh, they have they're even they're even observations he made. We disagree with his value system, but his perception was right because he, he sees the comics. By the very nature, people want to use comics to, to transcend social norms. They want to true. break social norms. And he says, well, you know, there's a lot of male and on male bonding in these comics.
0: That's true. There's a whole, remember, there's a whole bondage thing. And, <laughs> and there's
1: bondage in and S&M. And he's saying, you know, people read these comics. Uh, there's going to be alternative sexualities. There's going to be, you know, same sex relationships. There's going to be, you know, kink and it's going to, show up in these books and other people are going to read these books and it's going to spread along them too. So we got to cut this out because these things are bad. And I think, you know, we had a, we had a panel recently where uh, a New York comic con where Joe village spoke very eloquently about the, the fact that I think what many people fear about comics is not that they're weak, but that they have this power. Is mm-hmm. that they get people to think differently and to be creative and to transcend norms uh, and, you know.
0: And then just to jump in, and Joe Illich is the, uh, he is the the African-American editor. He's an editor at, uh, uh, Heavy, Heavy Metal. Metal. Heavy Metal. Yep. Uh, but he was also one of the original, as he was a young editor at Milestone Media, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the legacy of African-American owned imprint yep. at DC Comics. So, and, and Joe is, a, is an out, uh, is an outspoken, um, uh, uh, comics professional about a wide variety. Yep. Of issues, uh, this as well as on diversity. Just, to, just so our, our audience yeah. knows who you're talking about. Yeah, and, and what uh,
1: exactly? Exactly right. And it's it's one of these things as as, as, as he pointed out is that you know, it's not that comics aren't changing society it's that people who oppose them see that they do have the power to change society and they're trying to stop that. And so mm-hmm. why now? What's happening? Well, mm-hmm. when when you think people are getting used to comics, are getting used to superhero movies. Uh they, they, they sort of see comics in, in kind of I think one sort of genre occupying one kind of space. Pandemic forces everybody from the outside to the inside, and they also force everybody, particularly kids, to be interacting with their curricula, their com with the books at home. And parents start seeing what kids are reading.
0: And what kids as are opposed about to it ignoring class. it and as long as they 're quiet right
1: yeah. <laughs> so getting getting back to the zoning thing yeah, and so people start parents start seeing kids doing this, and for a certain type of parent, what people talk about in school today, and particularly since graphic novels which teach visual literacy are such an important part of it, have been increasingly such an important part of education. Uh, parents see them, you know, they're expecting kids to be reading books and then they're seeing pictures. Uh, they're expecting kids to be talking about the civics that they had when they grew up. You know, for me, it was when I grew up, I was reading Dick and Jane. And, you know, and the, the father wore a suit so and was everybody was white. and
0: yes. And So uh, was I, that's uh, what I, that my books were no different. <laughs> and I grew up in Washington, D.C., a city that was 70% black. And believe me, everybody <laughs> in my textbooks was white. That's
1: right. I mean, it's just, I've, I've been no. reading them to get some perspective on why people were responding. It's like, it's incredible. It's this alternate universe that's just bizarre. And, and so there's, they're seeing, and, and this is a huge, huge, huge change. People are also talking about gender identity. They're yes. talking about diversity as a, as not just sort of a wishful thinking, but as a standard for governing society uh it's the new civics yeah it's what yes. it's you know and, and, and if, I should, may,
0: yeah. if i may if i may add please, please. if i may add just as you talk about uh, i think as i mentioned earlier we 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 have we live in a new universe of comics consumption and distribution and and creation it's not uh a, a, it's not as acutely gatekept uh mm. as the comics are i will i love superhero comics the they are that's the genre that made me The goofy comic book loving all, you know, person that I am today. Uh, but the the world of comics today is so different from the, I'm, I'm actually, I'm 70 this year. So I, I, I really grew up. I mean, comics were still, I still remember comics when they were 10 cents and you only could buy them at a newsstand. So, you know, the world we have now, I mean, the world of the, of the fifties and the sixties reacted you know, um, it, histrionically at mm-hmm. new kinds of comics. So now we're in a world here where there is, uh, there is exponentially more kinds of comics available in more kinds of places. So mm-hmm. like, as I think I said earlier, my earliest, and I guess in the CBLDF's earliest field of battle was the, the comic shop. Now and I'm not saying that that's over, but now the battlefield has shifted to school. Uh, to, to schools, to school educators, to school libraries, mm-hmm. to public libraries, um, uh, to actual, I mean, and this is what I, this is where I, it seems as though the legal side, I mean, CBLDF has done great educational programs, and we'll talk about that mm-hmm. too, and there's resources. But CBLDF uh, is also a litigator. I mean, they, they, yeah. and now you, you're seeing uh, some uh, some of these red states you know, crafting legis uh, le- uh, crafting legislation, coming up with criminal offenses, threatening criminal offenses against librarians. Where does that l- now? do I mean, do you have, does do you need a war chest now, in addition to your your handbooks and pamphlets?
1: Oh yeah, definitely, and and uh, definitely. And one of the things that you know, when I came on board, we wanted to. Spend some time away from fundraising, so we could focus really focus on the mission. And because so often when you're running a nonprofit, there's this temptation to have fundraising sort of drive the cart, you know. Sure. And um, I, I wanted to spend some time where we said, okay, this is who we are. Let's take the time during the pandemic to talk about these issues to help people quietly. We've helped a bunch of people that people don't know about. We haven't fundraised off of it. We haven't publicized it. These are. All cases where we just take care of it, resolve it, and, and, and that's it. Uh, but going forward, we're definitely at war traps will be helpful. And I'll tell you why, and, and it has to do with sort of how it's, things have changed a little bit since the 1950s. When you were talking about, you know, why it's happening now, we were talking about schools and people seeing the things that they weren't used to seeing before. You know, that's, with that has also come an opportunity, and that is the opportunity to oppose books in a way that they can never oppose them before. Mm-hmm. And and this is one where the medium, you know, right now you and I are talking on Zoom uh, and you'll be sharing the things through a podcast app. And there are you know, a number of people who share things on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And what people realized is, well, hey, they're, they're seeing these images on their screen during the kids' school, where these schools and libraries, they have public, they're public meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a number of these are on, were streamed live on, zoom and then they're posted on youtube and they're whatever and so what people realized was late last year like around september was that comics could do something that other could serve a role that other types of books could we were helping in leander texas where a number of books were challenged including graphic novels and one of the things that really stood out for us was that there was there were there were accusations that, that graphic novels were not just obscene but subliterate they weren't just pornographic, but they were by having them in school. You, you were keeping kids from being able to read. Whereas I see things differently, and I know you do too, and a lot sure. of other people in comics. They're they're like the the heart of the new literacy. You can't work in today's world without understanding graphic storytelling. I mean, there are courses now. I was looking. I, I'd spent some time in the fashion world, and I was looking at a a, a some a, a tech a, a thing on virtual reality and designing for fashion and virtual reality. And required part of that course is to study uh, comics and yeah. uh, how comics use images and to, to present uh, storytelling and all that sort of stuff and if you 're studying fashion now you 're studying comics, which is yeah. mind blowing for me absolutely mind blowing mm-hmm. so what people realized was so, so we 're doing the thing in, in Leander and they 're attacking graphic novels, and we had a very successful defense there and they 're also attacking some other books um, people are going to school boards. Uh, so a parent in Virginia picks up that they're challenging at school boards, but also picks up that one of the books that people have been challenging in, in various locations was a book called Gender Queer.
0: Yes. And,
1: and that book has some pretty, there's, there's some images that take in out of context.
0: Yeah. Kind of May, Maya Kebab, I, I, I know mm-hmm. the book. I apologize yep. if, I, if I mangled your name. Um, but go on.
1: So what they what the parent does is they, they they take the images from this book and then they they hold them up and so they get featured not just in front of the board but because it's on YouTube, it goes in front of everybody. Hmm. And then all of a sudden and it gets lots of likes and hits, right? Uh lots of comments. And so people realize, wait a second, I can go on YouTube via one of these meetings for a library, you know, the town town budget approval for the school and all of a sudden in little towns big cities across the country not just in the south not just in conservative areas uh, i'm interviewed because just a few miles down from where i live now uh in brookfield connecticut they're challenging drama uh, a few miles from where i live, in terms of my physical house uh they're going against gender queer and some other books um you know, in New York, New York City, Manhattan, in, in, um, and then it's some Staten Island, there's some challenges Long Island, there's some challenges. You know, this is this is all over the country, because people see that all you can, it's it's one thing when you read a text, and there are people even talk about this in strategy sessions, you can read a text, and people visualize it. And it's hard to attack that. But you get an image, you put that in front of a camera, you put that on zoom, bam, yeah. it goes viral. Instantly. It's like a bacillus, (laughs) Frederick would say. Indeed it
0: is. (laughs) Let me just jump Uh, in a second here as as well. I mean, because I think this is a, the imagery is triggering, uh, pictures invariably do this, um, uh, but very often it's pictures, well, any kind of nudity, I suppose, but also the topics that these pictures are Mm -hmm. being used to represent. Mm -hmm. Usually topics around, because what we have now in comics, that are run, and it's interesting that you just say that people are attacking the the, the value, the literate value of comics. Mm-hmm. When, of course, now we've never seen a wider range of comics on more kinds of subjects, including serious nonfiction, including books as you like, genderqueer, uh, but books about, uh, um, uh, uh gender, sexuality, the LGBTQ, uh, community, uh, sexuality, race, of course, and always, yep. Uh, the the misrepresentation and distortion of critical race uh, mm-hmm. theory into this boogeyman topic uh, in a way that it doesn't has never existed and doesn't now. Um, these seem to have all been dragged into this conversation around, say, having a nude body in the comp in a in yeah. And in fact, there's there
1: was an article that came out the day before the school board meeting. I think it was on the Daily Wire, if I remember correctly, the day before the school board meeting where everything hit in Virginia. That eventually, that school board meeting, in, in, mm. in a way, that image, those images from gender queer, they elected the current governor. I mean, we had conversations in the CBLDF after that yeah. went viral in September, and I said, you know, if if the go- if Yunkin comes close or wins, we're going to be dealing with a new wave of this stuff for the next two to four years, at the very yeah. least and here we are because because it's a wedge issue it's 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 a way that you can bring people together across ideology to say this sort of thing has to be stopped and and that's been really interesting to see how the language is is co-opted in a way and, or crosses ideological lines so in in the gender queer situation one of the things ther- one of the things we noted in leander was how people were talking about well, they didn't want to introduce these, these books back into the curriculum until we had proper mental health resources so that if people were traumatized by seeing certain images, that they had their mental health cared for. Or with the race, which is really fascinating because we have the anti-CRT laws going across the country. And Jerry Craft's uh, Class Act, A New Kid, yes, that's swept I mean, up in that in, in Texas. Mean, and this is a classic example of not knowing how to read. It's the same thing we saw in, in, in McMinn with mouse, not knowing how to read the text. There's this, uh, um, one sequence that people would publicize from, from Jerry Craft's work, which was about people going off to a conference and they said, well, this is, this is something that, that traumatizes people. It's, it's, it's making white kids feel like they're inferior and look at this group that gets founded and they're, they're going to make the white kids feel awful and we can't have this and, and one of the brilliant things about the, the book is that it it isn't propaganda. There's actually satire. I mean, the group that they were they were putting out is like, here's this group that's out to to oppress white kids. It's almost he's presenting this almost comedic thing where there are yeah. these people who are so overzealous that they end up going overboard, and 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 the kids, the diverse kids, make fun of a lot of yeah. these teachers for for the, how they are, are. I guess that some would say virtue signaling. It's a really yeah, interesting this is a book subtle book. How to
0: find a new community and make yeah. a new community, how to bring people together. I mean, which really the people who are, who are actually reading it understand. Mm-hmm. But if you're only interested in using it, uh. You take an image, you put it on YouTube, bam. Yeah, right, to, to create a divisive split in the community, uh, yep. and with selective editing, mm-hmm. uh, it's really unfortunate. But let me ask you this. I mean, what, how do you how are we going to, how to fight back on this um when you have governors uh who are sanctioning uh mm-hmm. book bans and censorship well you have state legislatures and as I said before, even um law enforcement uh threatening criminal charges against teachers um uh, and of course, more and more books coming out all the time. That are well thought out, well researched, beautifully illustrated, uh, be they prose or comics, about all of these topics that um, the, uh, certain groups of people seem to think people shouldn't be able to read about.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. How it's, do you fight back? To, it's going to,
1: you know, just as the community came together back in 1986 to found the CBLDF. Uh, people pulled their resources, uh, they pulled their knowledge, they shared stories nationwide. I think it's going to take that kind of concerted effort to fight back this next wave because there's, there's nothing less at stake, I think, than the future of literacy for kids. Uh, in many ways, uh, the influence of comics as a medium throughout society is at stake because one of the things that I'm really afraid of is, um, there there are threats of arrest, and in the cases where we've been able to intervene or talk to people and sort of advise on, on how to deal with this sort of thing, you can usually fend those off because most lawyers, at least most district attorneys, recognize that the material that's being brought up to them is not obscene. There are mm-hmm. These statutes, I'm going to be writing about this soon, uh, or it's going to be published soon uh about where they're harmful to minor statutes where there's material that is remember i said obscenity was the was the way you could get at it so they say we can't we can't distribute material that's obscene as to children this is how harmful to minors is typically defined and but you're not going to find the works that you're talking about these award-winning works they're not just there to appeal to what's called the period of interest they're just not people to, to make people feel sexually gratified And they have socially redeeming value. They're talking about civics and all sorts of interesting things. Exactly. And so they're not going to. If most district attorneys know, if they take those things to court, they're going to lose, and they're going to lose big. Yeah. So part of it is you have a parent or an activist group going to the district attorney. Part of what we do is either talk to the council or talk to the, 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 the the lawyer who could prosecute, or what we prefer to do is actually work with lawyers on the ground. Mm-hmm. Many lawyers don't know the law on this area because mm-hmm. lawyers are specialists and so most lawyers aren't dealing with obscenity practices. So part of what we do, and I'm a lawyer myself, mm. is just talk to counsel and say, hey, I know you didn't recognize this. You work with a comic shop. We still have, we actually do have a return to accusing retailers of distributing material that's harmful to minors and, thus ab- and obscene as to children. And so here's here's what the law is. Um, here's how you can approach your local district attorney. Here's how you can talk to your police and just talk them out of actually filing the charges that have been pressed. Mm-hmm. But, but whether it's against the librarian, retailer, teacher, administrator, whoever. But here's the problem. And, and my real fear is that what, what the people who are doing this are smart enough to realize is that they don't need a court case anymore. Mm-hmm. All they need is for people to be afraid. Mm. They need to be afraid that they're going to be the next person whose book, you know, that that was ordered for their class or for their library or is being sold at their store, given away at free comic books day. So, you know, we just did a thing for retailers and I got to say fly spec the books that you're giving away for pre comic books day, because that's one thing that's consistent from the beginning. You know, when, when, from years ago through today is when retailers give away books as a promotion and it happens to have something in it, that's off color, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Body part, or a word, or something like that. Some, there's a good chance somebody's going to be reporting that to yeah. the police. So, um, but they realize they don't actually have to ha- win a case anymore. Mm-hmm. You just have to make people afraid to use comics.
0: In other words, a, a new form of the Comics Code Authority. Yeah, where yeah. you're exactly. self-examining and self-censoring to some degree. Yep. Um, but this must put retailers in a tough spot as well as libraries in because. All of a sudden now, we're, we're in, if I may say so, a flowering of the graphic arts. Mm-hmm. Comics have never been better. They've never been more, North American comics have never been more various in, in genre, in art treatment. We have a, a massive uh, self-publishing uh, category now, thanks to, to Kickstarter and, and and crowdfunding, where you don't have to depend on the taste of the publishers anymore. You can Mm -hmm. bypass them and say, hey, here's a market that you didn't know existed. And I can get the, I can, so we're living in this strange world. Even though people are bringing these charges and uh, trying to suppress books, there's a lot of people that love these books and they have to be a political force too. I mean, you mentioned drama by Raina Telgemeier, generally suppressed because it does investigate in a, in a really charming and useful way, LGBTQ issues. Millions of people have bought that book. These people must vote. These people mm-hmm. are throughout these communities, even red state communities. So there's, there, there is some potential out here for, you know, a more vocal majority of people to stand up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's a part of it is, you know, I think of the,
1: a profession that I don't think many people realized existed until you had a, uh, president Obama win higher office or run for higher office, which is the idea of a community organizer, somebody who builds institutions, mm. build structures locally that can have uh, wide scale change. And I think that what I'm seeing in, in comic shops and with educators that we're talking to is a real groundswell of interest in doing just that for graphic novels. There's a huge pressure right now on schools uh, not to, Buy these books, there's a pressure on retailers not to stock these books. And we're beginning to see, uh, parents, interested community members who may not be parents but are part of the community, uh, retailers and uh, educators, librarians coming together, putting together book clubs. Uh, talking about books, uh, talking about the importance of comics with the teachers, talking about the importance of comics with administrators, writing letters to their local, you know, to message boards, or mm-hmm. I even saw a letter to a
0: newspaper the other day uh,
1: about it. Um, <laughs> the old school, really old school.
0: I, I know uh, people he, still write letters, but but I thought all the newspapers were about to go away. But anyway, that's no, but, but a, but, but a bad joke. But, there you go. but, but uh, yes, good to hear. But,
1: Building building that institutional structure where people are, kids are encountering comics, adults are encountering comics. They're trying to understand comics. They're explaining comics. They're you know learning how to read comics. Um, They're engaging the material. Everybody everybody has agency. Everybody is part of it. Even you know I remember I I wrote a a curriculum for a major international company, and uh, one of the things that ended up being very popular globally, and. Um, one of the things people loved about it was I was tasked, in addition to helping to design this cartoon and story it and all that nonsense, uh, but also and to write a curriculum where teachers teach. What I did was every unit I created a special project where kids would then take the characters and create their own stories. They'd create their own adventures. They'd solve, you know, and I taught them about storytelling and how to tell a story through visual media. And kids ate that up. The teachers loved it. The kids loved it because they weren't just getting a lesson they got power to do it themselves. Yeah. And they were making see, the lesson. They were making <laughs> the lesson. And when, well. when kids see that that they can, that comics give them that power, you know, Marshall McLuhan talked about comics as the ultimate <laughs> participatory medium. Then uh, you, you, you put this thing in kids where they do not want to see these comics go away. Mm-hmm. Parents see the positive results of kids and, with kids and they see how learning this thing can help you communicate in business. It can help you communicate. If you become a in in gaming, it can help you communicate in the sciences. There's so many ways uh, in marketing. There's so many ways you can use comics literacy. Then when people start to take it away, you'll, you'll see people in the community fighting back. The other thing has to do with the values. We've had tremendous change in this country over the past 20 years. And again, we don't realize it, but it wasn't that long ago when the Supreme court, um, affirmed the right of states to throw people into jail because they were involved in same sex, sexual relationships. That wasn't a hundred years ago. No. You know, we're talking like 25 mm-hmm. and, uh, the recognition of constitutional protection for transgender identity and same sex relationships in in the workplace, uh, civil rights laws. We're, we're just talking like two years ago. Mm-hmm. This is all really new. Same sex marriage just a few years ago before that. Um, the legality of same-sex relationships very new. Um, the diversification of the United States is very new, and what that means in terms of uh, allocation of resources and overcoming class differences and that sort of thing—all um, really, really, really new. And I, I think you know people are latching on to the lack of familiarity with certain images to sort of as they're put up attack. I, I feel and what they're trying to do is they're trying to shame you into yes. not supporting these books. I feel like we need to create a culture where people should feel ashamed to raise those objections. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's well, I, I, in, 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 in civic life, you know, reporting, it's not just book burning, but just calling somebody out and saying, you know, Oh, there's this image and we, we, we have to get, what about the children or you know, the classic, what about the children um well, does nobody think of the children well i think if you want to think about the children you have to think about a society where anybody can get up and because they object to a particular image can have whole swaths of literature and whole ideas wiped out of the public square you should be ashamed in this country absolutely to do that this person should you, you this person I'm not saying let's make the person a pariah. I don't want you to fight like that, but you just, you just feel a certain, mm, I can't do that because that's not who we are.
0: Exactly. Well, that's a great way to put it. Um, I mean, we're really talking about something that we like to think is at the core of American society. And yet it seemed to be constantly pushed to the friends, the freedom to read, the freedom, uh, of expression, uh, and, mm-hmm. and the, the freedom for you to say, you know, I don't think I want to read that book, but not for you to say that nobody else can read it. Yeah. I mean that's crazy. Um well, that's, yes, that's what to, like oh yes, yes. Sir, please go sir. on. Um, you know one of the things over the years I noticed in 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 my work uh, reporting on the CBLDF and engaging with it is that you know as I said you know my first my initial um um uh, understanding of the CBLDF dude was was around uh book selling comics comic shops but then later on I noticed that there was a very strong relationship between um the library, uh, profession, uh, and of course education. And there's a, there's an enormous amount of, of resources on the CBLDF website also mm-hmm. for just the things we're talking about. For instance, I was a member, uh, of the uh, board of trustees of the Freedom to Read Foundation, mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago, uh, where I really saw, I mean, they do for the library world, like, you know, what the CBLDF does for a variety of worlds. Uh, and that they provide all kinds of support, grants, they've got a, a, they have multiple councils to advise and to lobby Congress. And of course the ALA's Office of of Intellectual Freedom. So do you you guys still work together or, or, uh, in some way with these organizations? In fact, we did, we
1: did a thing, uh, we did, we did a thing in in Chicago Comic Con. Uh, -hmm. ALA was on the board. We do stuff with, uh, national coalition against censorship.
0: Yeah. Oh, uh, yes. And another one organization. Uh,
1: yeah. We, we do things regularly with, uh, mm-hmm. on these issues. We had an event last night, uh, on editorial cartooning. There's another mm-hmm. event
0: for uh, kids challenging censorship next week. This yes. is, and you even have resources is, on teaching kids how to think about their rights and to stand up to their rights in appropriate ways. Mm-hmm. Yep. And And this is, you know,
1: law is a tool. That's that's how I see it. It's, it's. Will we be, you know, will we be in the midst of, of in terms of using resources, where we're needing to spend, you know, a million dollars to keep somebody from prison? Well, I don't know how many cases like that there are going to be. But I can tell you that there are going to be challenges across the country, like we've seen with mouse, like we've seen with uh, gender queer, like we've seen with New Kid in Class Act, like we've seen yeah. with drama, like we've seen with American Born Chinese, yes. over and over and over again. Where yeah, and, and it's like one of the, the shocking things for me is at the same time, you know, it goes public that uh, uh, American Born Chinese is going to be adapted into a TV series. Yes. you have people calling it obscene. You know, you know, you have people who say that it should be banned because of, uh, and again, using the progressive rhetoric to, to, to get out progressive books and say, well, you know, look at the way it portrays people. And so we just can't have this discussion. But they, uh, and it's,
0: for those who don't know, that book is an open discussion, uh, and, and challenge to, to Asian American mm-hmm. stereotypes yeah. done by one of our great artists who is mm-hmm. Asian American. Yeah. So that's, uh, Jean Yang. Um, uh i mean i just you know as we're, we're, our time is running down here but i do want to make sure that people know that cbldf.org is a great resource uh uh for instance history of censorship uh and moral panics and if you haven't heard of moral mm-hmm. panics uh you 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 need to know more about it uh the ability that that the notion that uh teenagers are driving the world uh uh to hell is, is not new <laughs> uh, it's in generally uh, a lot of nonsense. It go, has been happening for years and years. I guess the boogeyman is also video games right now. Um, but um, uh, uh, one 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 thing on the site that I that I think is really useful to people is to, I mean, you, you I, if you've listened to the titles that we've talked about, I mean, um, almost everyone is an acclaimed book, and these are books that they're trying to prevent. People from reading. I mean, it goes on and on. Bone by Jeff Smith. Blankets. We've mentioned drama. Alison Bechtel's Fun Home. The um, graphic novel adaptations of Diary of Anne Frank
1: and yeah, The Handmaid's I mean, Tale.
0: Yeah, yes, I mean uh, the, uh, Brian Case Bond's great science fiction fantasy <sighs> saga. Um, Alan Moore's Watchmen. I mean, you know the the the, uh, the, uh, the Hernandez brothers, Palomar. Mm-hmm. I mean it goes on and on like this you know if, if you if you put together a library of banned books you'd be the best red <laughs> Smarty pants in your neighborhood um and, but you can go on the CBLDF though if you want to know these books and usually and, and I should also just tell people that I also look at the um ALA's banned book list I know you guys have worked on them with that mm-hmm. once again if you look at these banned book lists, books that are most challenged in libraries and other places, they're some of our greatest literary works. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the books you 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 should be forced to read. Not that you should force people to do anything, but these books should be made available. And yet we're having a discussion about what do we have to do? How do we have to marshal our sources to protect they, them? They should be the the new canon. Yes. And, yes. And they are, and they will continue to be. So, um... Uh, but, but like I said, there's so many resources on the CBLDF, Rich. So did I leave anything out? Is there something you want to?
1: No, uh, I, I, I want to, I, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for, for having me on the interview. I, uh, and for, if your listeners, you know, you mentioning the, the, the resources that we offer. We're in the process of expanding the availability of those and, uh, in terms of the scope of those to get mm-hmm. books, so, some more recent books added to it and sort of revise some things in the existing ones to focus on the types of quests, the, the types of challenges we've been seeing. If you're an educator, if you're a librarian, if you're a lawyer, uh, just if you're somebody yeah. interested in being active, if you're a retailer, somebody, you know, if, if you're a student who's interested, anybody who's interested in being active, please, please reach out to us. Um, we, that it isn't, it isn't, we're only as, as, you know, our strength derives from the community. It's what gave rise to the CBLDF. It's what's kept it going for, you know, almost forty years at this point. And I think uh, you know, if if censorship were to go away entirely, um that would be good. Uh but as long as as long as we have this issue, as long as people want to sort of exert their will over others, which is I think a human thing that's been going on now for several millennia.
0: Yeah, it seems (laughs) to be happening again. But yeah, Uh, we can
1: but there are a lot of local there are a lot of battles we can win and just as comics went from being something that people were trying to ban entirely in the 1950s to being at the heart of american and think global popular culture uh over the past you know two decades you know in terms of comics being the future of wide you know, far-reaching visual literacy being the future of education being something that everybody knows how they work and Everybody can have access to using comics to, you know, build their own businesses, Mm -hmm. build their own side hustle, to express themselves however they want to express themselves.
0: You can be a part of that.
1: And, uh, we'd love to have you on board.
0: Well, I I think that's as good a place as any to kind of wind this up. Um, uh, look, Jeff, thanks so much. Uh, people don't sleep on the CBLDF. Uh, they've been doing this for a long time, protecting your right to read, your freedom. To read. They have enormous resources. Go check it out. CBLDF.org. Uh, Jeff Trexler, Interim Executive Director of the Comic Book Legal Defense mm-hmm. Fund. Thank you so much for being on More to Fu- More to Come yet again.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful podcast and I'm,
0: I'm honored and just delighted to be here. Thanks. All right. Great. Thanks so much, Jeff. We'll talk Bye. again. Yep.
1: So I got. I gotta say, I have always assumed that you and I were about the same age, and <laughs> well, I didn't know this.